Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of COVID with Alliant. My name is Christine Blanco. I'm the Director of Employee Benefits here at Alliant, and Diana is here as well. Hello, everyone. So before I get started, and I haven't told Diana I'm going to do this, um, I may, those of you who listen uh, may remember that um, I got a dog, a COVID dog, and um, I've had a lot of questions about that. I mean, a lot meaning like three, because I know there are like <laughs> 17 of you. Um, and, I had a lot of questions about it. I, I was like, what the hell? And we didn't know what to name him, and there were a lot of great suggestions like teeny, as in quarantine, or just Modelo as a riff on Corona. Anyway, I just thought I would tell you guys that I ended up naming him Mocha Joe because I've been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. Those of you who are fans, you'll know what I'm talking about. So that is my little foray into what's happening in our world um, and coronavirus. And I hope you are all doing well and managing this as we just continue to forge ahead. So at this point, I think Diana's having an allergic reaction to me not talking about substantive issues. <laughs> I, I'd love to give everyone an update on what I've been doing, but it's largely working. <laughs> Again, always on message. So today we're going to talk about cost containment strategies and some carrier options that we're seeing in the market for employer sponsoring group health plans and what compliance issues come along with those. We've had a lot of questions about that. So that's what we'll talk about today. Diana, I know you kind of had sort of a level set you wanted to, to lead with. Yeah, and I think the important thing when you pull back on cost containment strategies and carrier issues and what can I do is you just have to remember um, when you make these changes, you need to figure out is it a change under ERISA that I need to be dealing with? Is it something that modifies the content of an SBC that I need to deal with? Um, does it create or allow a cafeteria plan election change um, possibly or some flexibility there? And then does it implicate the Affordable Care Act payer play rules? Are you changing the actual value of your plan? Are you messing with affordability? So just go in with eyes open and um, and make those changes mindfully. And. And before we move on, you made a note about ERISA, and I want to make sure that our governmental plans don't feel left out. Um, those, you know, cafeteria plan, ACA considerations, and even though ERISA doesn't apply, there are also, you'll want to inform your population whether, you know, you're required to do so. Obviously, ERISA doesn't apply to our public sector plans, but you will be impacted here and would want to largely you know, follow the same principles and guidance there. Well, and let's just be candid. The mm -hmm. ERISA rules on material reductions require notice 60 days after, after the change is adopted. <laughs> so helpful. That <laughs> never works. So, you know, we take a, a page out of ERISA just in communicating, but we, we're generally going to be giving advance notice of exactly. these changes. For a host of reasons. Oh. So, okay, why don't we launch into number one? We're just going to ping back and forth here. Okay. All right. You're not going to ask me my question? Oh, oh, okay. We're <laughs> going to do it in that format. Yes. Diana, can employers reduce their contribution to a medical plan premium mid-year? Uh, why, yes, Christine. I'm, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> and realistically, guys, we, we've always known this. Employers can always adjust cost sharing at any time. But we need to look at what does that mean. So if you as an employer reduced what you're contributing towards the premium, that's going to increase what your participants are asked to pay, and that potentially triggers our significant cost change rules under our cafeteria plan, election change, or status change rules. 
And so when we have a significant cost change, so here it's an increase to the employees, the employees are generally going to be allowed to make an election change. And in this case, it's going to be the ability to switch to a cheaper plan or drop their coverage. And since, um, gosh, since I got into this racket in about 2008, I've been asked, what does it mean for a cost change to be significant? Mm-hmm. And they still haven't answered that question, have they? <laughs> they will never answer it for you. It's like IRS will just, you know, give you a lot of leash to get in trouble on. But what I can tell you is what they want you to do is look at the change relative to what people were previously asked to pay. Um, you can say a percentage, but sometimes that doesn't make sense. Sometimes looking at it as a dollar amount makes more sense. And then you need to look at the demographics of your population because a change that's 20, 30, 50 bucks a month uh, might not mean something to someone who's a relatively high wage earner. But if you're a low wage earner, it might mean a lot to you. Um, So we have a a couple of other things we need to just hit on there. Before you swing your cost sharing around wildly, uh, if you have an insured plan, just talk to your carrier about that. And that's just kind of an underwriting issue there. Um, And when we look at what else we need to communicate. I just wanted to call out that, you know, the kind of minutia on specific plan cost sharing, it is not required content in your SPD. Your SPD wants you talking about plan funding and how benefits get paid. And we usually describe cost sharing in our OE materials. But um, so we this doesn't necessarily trigger an SMM, but that's going to be your best vehicle to communicate the change. So just use that. And we were joking about that timing. You're going to give people advance notice of this change. This isn't going to tweak your um, your SBC content, so maybe not 60 days advance notice. Because when you tweak your SBC content mid-year, you're looking at 60 days advance notice. And then just lastly, just take a look at what cost sharing does to your affordability. Go into that decision with your eyes open on ACA pay or play affordability. That's right. That's a good point. We don't want to um, ruin any cost savings by an increase in penalties under the ACA. Okay, so the next question, well, you have to ask me the question. Uh Uh-oh, we're going to have to do this the whole time now? You you teed it up that way. We don't have to, but (laughs) we'll do this this time. Uh, All right. So, Christine, can employers change their medical plan deductibles or out-of-pocket limits mid-year? That is a loaded question. Well, Diana, possibly. A self-funded plan generally is going to have the flexibility to make these changes mid-year. But I always say, like, the ability to do something from a compliance or legal perspective is never usually the end of that answer. Doing so raises a number of practical challenges that really need to be addressed with your plan's third-party administrator. What comes to mind for me is tracking those deductibles and out-of-pockets when you change them, that's an impact. Um, And that leads me into, well, hold on, I'm going to stop before I get there because obviously that's a meaningful change for your employees, which will allow them some flexibility in in making uh, status changes. But when we're talking about fully insured plans, remember those are plans that are developed and filed with the state. Um, So you can't just be making those changes to those prescriptive plans willy-nilly. Some carriers may, we've heard about this, let employers buy down to a less rich plan mid-year. But any potential insured plan changes would require contract amendments. And um, so that's probably uh, 
a less likely alternative in a fully insured arrangement. And note that under any circumstance, a meaningful change in deductibles or OOP limits would be a significant, a significant coverage curtailment, which is again, under cafeteria plan election changes or status rule changes, a reason why an employee can make an election change. They will generally in that situation have the option to switch to a different medical plan or drop coverage. And in this scenario, what we're probably looking at would be dropping coverage. It's, I don't imagine there's a richer plan out there that somebody wants to move into, but if there was, that is permissible. Um, and this is a key component, and Diana alluded to it. And I think as we're talking through cost containment strategies, because what I think is happening is obviously employers are looking for where can they get the most bang for their buck, so to speak, on changes in the short term. And a lot of this stuff is really short-term, long-term, but this, you have to understand that certain of these changes do require advance notice of 60 days. This is one of them. So this isn't something you're gonna impose and immediately be able to um, implement. You would require 60 days changes because this is information included in the SBC. So again, you'll wanna highlight those changes that are listed in the SBC, the summary of benefits of coverage, because any change there requires advance notice prescriptively of 60 days, whereas our other changes, we wanna give them you know, ideally 30 days, maybe two weeks, depending on the circumstances. I mean, again, time has warped in, in this particular set of circumstances. Lastly, deductibles and out-of-pocket limits impact the actuarial value of the plan, so you need to confirm that they still, that the plan is still minimum value. I mean, if you're looking at you were running a 60% actuarial value plan before doing this, it's possible any change could drop you below that and then that creates a whole lot of ACA pay or play issues. If you want to know more about that, you can reach out to your Alliant representative. We have um, oodles of information on ACA application. Yeah, I mean, and that one really hits every box. I mean, you got an ERISA change, an SBC change, mm -hmm. a CAF plan change, right. an ACA consideration. It's just everything in that. And that's what's interesting about this whole discussion on cost containment is, you know, what... You know, any change can click any number of dominoes, and you have to be really careful and aware of that and make sure your advisors are helping you through that. Is it, are you up? I'm not going to read the question. You just, you just do it. <laughs> I, I can read my own question. And this has been a really, really common question and something I honestly I didn't anticipate at all. Mm -hmm. So what's been happening is insurance carriers have been offering a mid-year, and I'm going to air quotes this, special enrollment opportunity for people who had previously declined coverage. So you declined coverage at OE, the carriers are saying, all right, we'll let you guys on now mid-year. And I just want to flag this is, um, the carriers do not have the authority to amend HIPAA. So this is not a HIPAA special enrollment, right? For that note. This is a weird little bit of carrier flexibility. And the question uh, we got is, can employers take advantage of this opportunity in a compliant way? And really what they're asking is, is there a way to fit this in our cafeteria plan? So they can pay pre-tax. Yeah, I mean, we just, you're going to pay pre-tax for this. Um, but how do we fit it in those sets of rules? And so how we fit it in is the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Oh, gosh, the FFCRA or the Act. I get, we have so many acts now, I'm losing track. <laughs> Basically mandated that all group health plans are required to cover COVID-19 testing, uh, the products connected to testing, and the related visit that leads to testing without cost sharing. 
So um, here's where the shoehorn comes in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I'm going to go with during a global COVID-19 pandemic, this would be a significant improvement of a benefit package. Indeed, I agree with you, Diana. Well, thank you. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> Under our cafeteria plan rules. So what this allows us to do, and I don't think it requires employers to do this, but it definitely gives you the ground to stand on to do it, is to let people who had declined coverage enroll now. Because when you decline coverage, you're basically making an election not to an elect. So we, we've had that, that flexibility. And the thing that's a little bit tricky here is we don't really have rules, if you want to allow this, for the number of days for an enrollment window. Um, but oh, yeah. When we look at it, right? yeah, just, it's just we're going to be reasonable. We're going to give people who declined advance notice of the opportunity and a reasonable window to join the plan. I mean, I've seen enrollment windows as short as a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but then this also would generally require an SMM under ERISA. That's just the addition of this benefit. And we actually have a template, uh, an SMM template that addresses both are you allowing this uh, enrollment opportunity? And then, hey, we've got this you know, new mm-hmm. free COVID testing and right. related visit. Um, but so again, we just want to sort of be, be mindful, be practical. And then um, if you're self-funded and you want to go down this road, this is the thing I would tell you just every day. Please talk to your stop-loss carrier before you open the doors to you know, extend enrollment. Get their approval there. Okay, Chris? and I'm, before we move on, I'm going to open Pandora's box of the difference between what the underlying medical or group health plan allows versus Section 125 because what we're trying to do, again, is shoehorn all of this into sort of our standard election process, right, where someone elects under Section 125 and can pay pre-tax. Um, arguably, this is not what we would recommend, uh, but arguably you could put somebody on the plan and have them pay post-tax. You don't want to do that, but just understand and when a carrier allows this, and you really want to do it, Section 125 isn't going to close those folks out of enrolling in the plan. And it gives you that pre-tax benefit, which is good for you. Good it's for them. It's good for the employee. Yeah. It all works in a standard rubric. And I think we've got solid footing for Yeah, that. I just don't think the IRS is going to come down in a helicopter <laughs> in the midst of this on this election change Could anyone year. argue right now that COVID-19 testing is not a significant thing? I mean, well, it's... Indeed. Agreed. Okay. So another question is, can we stop our employer contribution to our employees' HSA mid-year? I'm going to not bury the lead here and note that HRAs are not ERISA plans. or HSAs, yeah. Did I say HRAs? You said HRAs. There's too many acronyms, Chris. It's HSAs. HRAs are most definitely ERISA plans. Those are mine. They're next. Yeah. All right. All right. HSAs are not ERISA plans. Um, and so when an employer is offering an HSA contribution through a cafeteria plan and then makes its own contribution to the employee's um, HSAs through the cafeteria plan, and that's just basically your cafeteria plan allows employees to make the pretext contributions to their HSAs, the employer has considerable flexibility with how and when it makes contributions. Now, if as an employer, and that includes you know stopping them, And if an employer has some written documents addressing this issue, they're going to want to amend those materials. Again, we're just talking about notice. Um, This would generally include the underlying cafeteria plan document, and you want to give them as much advance notice of the change as possible, along with an explanation of the change. You want to limit any vested rights arguments under contract law. By the way, you said you were going to do X, Y, and Z at certain you know dollars a month, and you you know 
you broke your promise to me. So you want to make sure you're laying that groundwork to avoid that. We don't see that come up a ton, but it's not out of the question. Um, under the cafeteria plan rules, employees can also change their HSA elections. They've always been able to do that on a monthly basis, right? So they can do that here too. Now, note that where an HSA is not offered through the cafeteria plan, we have a whole different set of rules that are called the comparability rules, and they're very prescriptive, and they generally require contributions, employer contributions, to be the same amount or the same percentage of the HGHP deductible for each group of what we call comparable employees. Now, that's a whole nother ball of wax that we won't get into, but the takeaway here is nothing in those rules limits an employer's ability to simply stop making the contribution. So what you wanna be careful of in both of those circumstances is to not continue to make any HSA contributions to your highly paid or key employees because there are discrimination rules under Section 125 and very prescriptive rules under the comparability rules. So that's kind of a no-duh, but you know what? Sometimes you got to say the no-duhs. Um, can I take a second to briefly complain that however many years ago you made me write a white paper on the comparability rules? No, I think that was, I'm going to blame one of our one of our consultants for that. He knows who he is. <laughs> and hopefully he's listening. <laughs> um, okay, so that's out there if you want to know more about the comparability rules. Plug on that. So now we're going to turn to HRAs, which are ERISA covered. Yeah, and again, it's just, I always sort of look at it like, um, you know, a choose-your-adventure book on what set of rules apply to what different type of account-based plan because an HSA is not an ERISA plan. It's not part of your group health plan. Generally, we should say. Generally. Yeah, I mean, you're, yeah. you're doing some bad stuff. Yeah, right. We've got bigger problems. <laughs> um, but when we look at an HRA, it can feel similar, uh, but it's very, very different because it's a, it's a self-funded medical plan. It's part of your group health plan. It's subject to ERISA. So just different rules apply there. But remember, when we look at our benefit plans, you can almost always, unless again, you've done something terribly mm -hmm. wrong, terminate a plan mid-year or make changes to its design. That language is almost always in there. Oh, it's template yeah. language. Right. So my question that I'm sort of getting to in a really roundabout way is, can we limit HRA funding mid-year or terminate an HRA mid-year? And my answer there is, is yes. So you can stop your funding. You can even can the whole plan mid-year as long as you've reserved that right to amend or terminate. And that is in almost every template plan document, every template, uh, RAP SPD, SPD. It's a standard provision. But I wanted to bring up another option that I thought was um, maybe a little more creative. You could also, as an employer, unilaterally suspend HRAs. And that would mean... Um, Nobody's getting reimbursements through there, but it also means no funding is coming in through there, but it, it at least preserves balances. Um, so the things we need to think about when we are looking at, you know, changing HRA funding, terminating an HRA, uh, just first up, because HRA funding can, um, or it should be reflected in major medical plan SBCs, or oddly have its own strange-looking SEC. <laughs> yeah, right. So it triggers that 60 days advance notice provision required for any design change that changes the content of an SBC. And I would argue this would apply to any gap funding mechanisms out there. Anyone who does what's called gap funding, there's a lot of different 
products out there, but that would apply here. I, they're, they're largely HRAs, I hear, but, you know. Yeah, right. So next, because the HRA is an ERISA plan, you're going to need to do an SMM. And when you're really just having a big takeaway, we tend to call those a, sum, a summary of material reductions. And ERISA, again, has that ridiculous uh, notice provision 60 days after the change is adopted. We just don't do that. Here, we are mandated to give 60 days advance notice. Even if we were not, I would still say give people advance notice. And then also, just as a last note, uh, your HRA funding um, could possibly affect the actuarial value of your medical plan. So just make sure you're still running one 60% actuarial value plan. Yeah, That's a checklist yeah. here. In fact, that makes me think we should make a checklist for... Why does it feel like I'm, I'm getting homework assigned I, I in know. real time? <laughs> okay. Um, next question, something we're also seeing in a number of different states with carriers. Uh, they're allowing sort of, you know, forbearance for a couple months of premium or a moratorium on canceling policies for non-payment of premium, including group health plans. And so that raises some questions. Number one, can I still collect my employee premium during one of these moratoriums? And the answer there is yes. Um, it's not like, you know, you're going to get a pass. You're going to have to likely, I you know, again, I'll fall out of my chair if that's not the case. It's just forbearance, a delay in transferring the amounts that you owe on the policy to the carrier. And so it doesn't really reduce the amount that you're going to have to pay by the end of the year. And now if that somehow changes, you know, we'll cross that bridge. But um, certainly you can continue. You're not in violation of risk or any fiduciary rules by continuing um, to to collect those premiums. Note, however, there is this non-enforcement of the ERISA trust requirement. Most of our plans do not have trusts because they collect premium and then they distribute them over to the carrier within 90 days. And that is under uh, technical rule 9201. Yep. Yes, that's the dork factor. And so we, you know, that's just sort of an everyday thing that happens, but there is this underlying technical requirement. So you don't want to collect that premium and then hold on to it in violation of technical release 9201 and so that's an issue there there's also the flip side of this is can i pass along this sort of forbearance and premium holiday or moratorium on to my employees and you know i think i don't think there's anything prohibiting you from doing that but when we look at having to pay the entire premium sort of on a on a constricted time frame there's a lot of issues there meaning either you as an employer are going to take up more of that premium um, if you're not going to pass that along to your employees but if you're going to pass that along to your employees in an increased monthly premium on a pro rata or a month-by-month basis then they would that would tip the domino and in, in increased cost sharing they could drop the plan so we would recommend not doing that because of those reasons so um, and again, this is all, um, all of this stuff is happening as a result of the carriers or the state insurance departments wanting to allow some flexibility here. Um, but there's always, there's always something to consider. So last but not least. Oh, so Chris, of course, uh, left the hardest, worst question for me for last. Well, you're the wellness expert, so it's only appropriate. I am the wellness <laughs> expert. That's Now I feel better. Okay. So the last question, and it is a doozy. Um, so if we offer a wellness plan where an employee can earn a financial reward, um, can we eliminate that wellness reward 
mid-year if we're trying to cut costs. And we want to just pull back and go, Oof. I know. <laughs> so Buckle up. Those, those wellness plan rewards, those financial incentives can take a variety of forms. It can be a reduced premium. It can be account-based funding, money that goes into an HSA, HRA, HRA health FSA. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a lot of stuff that happens there. And then when we look at the wellness plan, wellness plans can take a variety of different shapes. When we look at wellness plans that provide medical care, so we're generally looking at biometrics or flu shots, we are triggering ERISA. But when we are looking at wellness plans that don't, we are arguably, well, not arguably, we're not. So then we go, well, what's the framework there? Um, And the framework there generally becomes this loose vested contracts right argument. So that's how I want to level set on it and then come back to my basic principle here, which employers generally have the flexibility to terminate a plan mid-year at any time and eliminate then any associated rewards. So we would love to see the right to amend or terminate reserved in any type of document connected to the wellness plan. Um, with ERISA plans, we are you know ones that touch medical care, so biometrics, flu shots. We tend to see greater documentation there, and we see this as a standard provision. When we have plans that don't, it can be a little bit um, more loose. loose yeah. But, I mean, I think you still can move forward. And, again, we're going to go with advanced notice of any change. So when we when we look back again at an adjustment to cost sharing, so people who did a wellness activity got um, to pay less in premium than those who didn't. The cost change uh, sharing rules or premium contribution change rules we talked about, those would all apply. If we're looking at funding to an HRA or an HSA, everything we just talked about there would apply. When the plan provides medical care, that requires an SMM or summary of material reduction, like we talked about. Um, So we just want to make sure we get out ahead of any issues. We give people advance notice. And then just um, lastly, if we are looking at a change in, um, in, in cost sharing that can implicate ACA affordability, but I want to be really clear here, only. wellness plan premium discounts do not generally affect cost sharing under the ACA mm-hmm. unless they are a tobacco surcharge and then those apply or a tobacco incentive, then that applies across the board, even to people who don't earn it. So before you bin all of those, just again, take a look back at affordability under the ACA. Yeah, so I think, you know, the takeaway is this wellness question is like a microcosm of all the cost containment potentially. And so before we close out, I want to hit what we're looking at here are changes to deductibles and out-of-pockets mid-year would require advanced notice. Limiting HRA funding would require advance notice, and then depending on what kind of wellness plan you're running, if you're contributing to an HRA, you would want to give advance notice. Yeah, I mean, and I would argue, too, if you're going to stop somebody's HSA funding, you, you know... You well, I should say 60-day advance notice yes, is what yeah. I'm talking about. When I'm talking about... We want to give advance notice in every circumstance, but I mean prescriptively under the SBC rules, the 60 days. Yeah, we look at SBC rules, then we go back to ERISA, which has that crazy rule, and then we 
I've always kind of defaulted to this weird contracts right argument where the minimum would be 30, right. arguably. But yeah. It's but a, I also think, too, six, a 60-day notice requirement, 60 days is an eon away in this world. It so it may, be, it may just knock some of those changes out of consideration right off the top right now. So, yeah. okay. I think that's it. I think it is. All right. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon.